Amen. Amen. I got discombobulated in my prayer just now. I was discombobulated all morning this morning. I started my morning at like 4, 4, 4.15 in Newport News, Virginia. And I took a 6 o'clock flight and got here and landed here and ate a biscuit right before I came out. Uh, so I should have been ready. Had that chicken, egg, and cheese biscuit. But, uh, but you pray for me this morning. I think I'm going to get through this. I think it's going to be great. But uh, uh, it remains to be seen. <laughs> Jonah chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 10. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. In other words, children who still haven't learned to distinguish their right from their left and much livestock. Jonah cared more about a miserable plant than he did the people of Nineveh, even its 120,000 children. Now, let me share a news story with you that parallels what we just read. This past October, the United States Supreme Court announced that they're going to hear a lawsuit filed by the state of Florida to restrict the state of Georgia's water rights. Over 5 million people now live in metropolitan Atlanta. Our water comes from the Chattahoochee River and Lake Lanier. Those tributaries feed the Apalachicola River between Panama City and Tallahassee in North Florida. Even though the Corps of Engineers releases 3.2 billion gallons of water every day from Lake Lanier, Florida thinks 
that we're holding on to more water than we need. For Florida wants to protect their mussels. Now, a mussel is a really simple animal, not much more than a ligament connecting two shells. It has gills, a digestive tract, and a foot. I'm told this. You'd never know by looking at it. Mussels don't even have muscles. And certainly, unlike human beings, muscles like a soul. When a muscle dies, that's it, man. It just ceases to exist. Trust me, there is no such thing as muscle heaven. Well, there's two species of Floridian mussels that live and thrive on the banks of the Apalachicola River. Both appear on our government's endangered species list. And the health of the mussels depends on the water levels in the Apalachicola River. Thus, the water war between the states of Florida and Georgia. Florida wants us to release more water to help their mussels. Georgia has 5 million thirsty Atlantans that can't survive without water. What's to be done? What comes first, mussels or people? Well, the state of Georgia has the Bible on its side. For the creator made men and women after his own image. And then he gave them dominion over creation, over nature. We're the caretakers of the environment, not its slaves. Humans that live forever are far more important than the mussels that live in the Apalachicola River. And this is the message in Jonah chapter 4. As far as God is concerned, an eternal soul is infinitely more valuable than a thing. People are of greater worth than plants. Men and women are more significant than muscles. After Jonah's expulsion from the great fish, God spoke to Jonah, and this time he obeyed. He answered God's second call. He traveled to Nineveh, and he warned the city of coming judgment. The people, even the king, repented. And you remember a great revival broke out. The largest city in the world turned to the one true God. The Lord spared Nineveh. The last verse in chapter 3 tells us, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. At the end of chapter 3, everybody is happy, happy, happy. Heaven is happy. Angels are happy. God is happy. The citizens of Nineveh are happy. The king of Nineveh is happy. Even the livestock in Nineveh are happy. You remember the king put all the animals on a fast to show God the city's great repentance. Now Betsy can eat again. She's very, very happy. Remember, in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus said, There is joy in the presence of the angels, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. Notice this. It takes just one person to admit their sin and turn to the Savior for heaven to throw a party. Well, imagine the celebration that went down in heaven when a whole metropolis repented. At the end of chapter 3, everyone is rejoicing with one exception. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. 
When God called Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh, his movement was different. He ran with God, not from God. But though his movement changed, his motivation was the same. Jonah still hated Ninevites. And when he talked of God's coming judgment on Nineveh, I bet he did it with a smile on his face. He relished the thought. He probably chuckled as he warned them. It was as if he was saying, yet in 40 days, and I can't wait until you Ninevites are overthrown. Jonah thought the Hebrews were the only people entitled to know God. In fact, he would rather die than share God with Gentiles as notorious as these Assyrians. How would you like it to have a pastor like Jonah? A pastor you knew hated you and despised the fact that God had saved you? A pastor who stayed away from you, who just kind of walked around you because he expected at any moment fire to fall from heaven and burn you to a crisp? And yet that's how Jonah prayed. Well, that's the kind of pastor that Jonah sent to Nineveh. And yet remarkably, they responded. They repented and listened to Jonah. The Assyrians were saved more despite Jonah than because of Jonah. This is why Jesus later, he says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh believed a man who hated them. While the Pharisees rejected Jesus, a man who loved them enough to die in their place. And as Jesus said, these Ninevites will be called to testify against the Pharisees in that day of judgment. Evidently, Jonah couldn't turn loose of his past and of his prejudice. When Jonah preached, he obeyed in action, but not in attitude. Jonah was like the out-of-control schoolboy who was running around in class, causing a disturbance. Finally, the frustrated teacher made him go over and sit in the corner. Later, he told his friend, I may have been sitting on the outside, but I was still running around on the inside. And this was Jonah. His feet might have obeyed God, but his heart was still in rebellion to God's will. And you need to know, it can happen to us. Just because your hands are doing the will of God, just because your feet are going to the place that God has called you, doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is in it. Your heart can still be in rebellion. Jonah went to Nineveh and preached, but he was upset with the results. Jonah had been waiting for fire to fall. He was angry that God chose to show them mercy. Realize Jonah hated Assyrians for all the right reasons. Their crimes were savage. They preyed on innocent people. Nineveh deserved justice, not mercy. In Jonah's mind, it was okay for God to be merciful to him, but how could God be merciful to Ninevites? And again, this is another mistake that we can make. We're happy to be the miracle case, to be the trophy of God's grace. But then we pick out a person or a group of people and say it can't happen for them. Oh, they've gone too far. They're not worthy to be saved, as if any of us is worthy to be saved. 
Jonah didn't realize that God is rich in mercy and he's eager to extend it to anyone who repents. Verse two, so he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? See, this is why Jonah didn't want to go in the first place. This is what he feared would happen. You know, some people accuse Jonah of not knowing God, but I think just the opposite was true. Jonah's problem was that he did know God. He knew God very well. He knew the width and the breadth of God's love. He knew how eager God was to save. There's an old hymn with these lyrics. There is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. Not even the boundaries of the sea are broad enough to take in all of God's mercy. To realize how encompassing are the mercies of God, you have to go to the cross. And you have to see Jesus' outstretched arms. That's how wide his mercies are. Every sin and every sinner are taken into account within those outstretched arms. Well, Jonah knew that God was so kind, so gracious. If the Ninevites showed just a mere inkling of repentance and faith, God would jump at the chance to save them. He says, therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Here, Jonah quotes from Exodus chapter 34. This is how God revealed himself to Moses. And usually Exodus 34 is read as a praise to God. Only Jonah quotes it as a complaint. He's saying, I knew this would happen. Those Assyrians deserved a fry in hell. But God is so gracious and merciful. Just give him half a chance and he'll mess everything up. He'll show forgiveness and save this bunch. This is why he tried escaping to Tarshish. Realize prejudice made Jonah one sick pup. Instead of rejoicing, he became resentful. Racism, prejudice can do that to a person. Racism can make a person irrational. In your self-righteousness, a bigot ends up opposing God. He makes dumb statements. In fact, Jonah here is so bummed out he wants to die. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, Jonah's a Jew, and Jonah knew that God's law forbids suicide. In fact, suicide is the ultimate selfishness. All the person pulling the trigger thinks about is his or her own pain, not the loved ones who are going to have to navigate the results. Jonah could never commit suicide, so here he asked God to take his life. The prophet is so proud in the stance that he's taken, so stubborn in his bigotry toward Ninevites. He would rather die than be wrong and show mercy. And you know, I know people just like Jonah. They're so eaten up with pride and prejudice that even when confronted with the truth, they refuse to admit the error of their ways. What happens next is so wise of God. Verse 4. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Notice God doesn't confront Jonah with some stern rebuke. 
He doesn't engage the prejudiced prophet in an argument or in some kind of shouting match. No, God is patient. He's gentle. He's kind. He appeals to the prophet's sense of right and wrong. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? You see, God loves to ask questions. We know this throughout the Bible. This is how he humbled Job, remember. He asked Job a series of questions that he couldn't possibly answer. God loves to stir up our thinking with questions. Here he asked Jonah, is this right for you to be angry? Problem though, Jonah refuses to answer. He has no response. He pleads the fifth. He doesn't answer on the grounds that it might incriminate him. Jonah isn't interested in discerning right from wrong. Jonah is only into Jonah. Which leads to his actions in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade. Till he might see what would become of the city. Now Jonah hasn't given up his prejudice. He's still hoping that God is going to rain fire down on heaven like he did on Sodom. He wants God to burn him to the crisp. Just send the city up in smoke. And that's why Jonah here is keeping his distance. Notice he climbs up on top of a hill east of the city, a good distance from the city. He's expecting God to unleash some fireworks. Of course, the summer heat in Mosul, modern-day Nineveh, can reach 125 to 130 degrees. Pretty hot. And so Jonah builds a lean-to with this awning that provides him shelter from the blistering sun. In essence, Jonah is building a luxury box, and he's settling in to watch God torch Nineveh with some blazing fire from heaven. Even after the greatest spiritual awakening of all time, Jonah still believes that God is going to judge the Ninevites. Realize that this is how NASCAR and IndyCar drivers deal with the death of a fellow motorist. They just refuse to think about it. Officials encourage their denial. On the day of a fatal accident at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, just as soon as the track closes, a crew heads out to paint over the spot where the car hit the wall. If you returned hours after the the track closed for the day, you would have a hard time pinpointing its exact location. You wouldn't be able to find it. It was painted over. Of the 40 drivers that have died as a result of accidents at Indianapolis, not once has the driver been pronounced dead at the track. Why is that? It's because Indy officials make sure that no one ever officially dies at their beloved speedway. The pronouncement is always made elsewhere. Visit the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's museum, which is located inside the two-and-a-half-mile oval, and you'll find no mention of the drivers that have lost their lives there. In short, to continue the dangerous sport of auto racing, it's best to deny that accidents even occur. And this is what it takes to continue in a prejudice. Jonah hated Nineveh. 
He believed they were beyond redemption. He didn't like these people. And so he denied all the evidence that contradicted his belief. Oh, the revival never happened. Nineveh didn't really repent. God couldn't relent. Jonah's bigotry blocked out all the evidence. And he retreats into his own little world to wait for God's judgment. Always remember, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Denial. Hey, you can build your own false reality with planks of prejudice. Jonah's bigotry had denied the truth. And a loving and a merciful God is about to worm his way through Jonah's denial to break into his isolation. You know, the story of Jonah reminds me of the wise way that Jesus dealt with the Pharisees of his day, the bias held by the Jews. Jesus engaged them not with confrontation, but with an illustration. He told them the story of two sons. The younger brother asked his father for his inheritance. Then he went off and he wasted it away on wild living and loose women. The boy ended up as low as a Jew could go. He took a job slopping hogs. That's when Jesus says, the boy came to himself. Suddenly it dawned on him. He realized that his father handled his servants, his hired hands, better than he was being treated. And so the son humbled himself and he returned to his father and he begged for mercy. He just wanted a job back on the ranch. But when the son returned home, the father saw him at a distance. He ran to meet him. He fell on his neck. He kissed him and showed him compassion. The dad forgave his son, clothed him in the finest clothes. He even killed the fatted calf in order to feast to celebrate his return. Everyone was happy when the prodigal son returned, except the older brother. Well, as a side note, there's one other character in the story who wasn't really happy with what went down. Any guesses? The fatted calf. Yeah. The fatted calf's last words were, eat more chicken. Hey, you know, when people remember the parable of the prodigal son, they usually forget that there were two sons. Jesus, though, emphasized the reaction of the older brother. When mercy was shown toward his kid brother, this older brother, we're told, he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Hey, it sounds just like Jonah, doesn't it? After Nineveh repented, Jonah should have gone into the city, started a Bible study, a holy party, to teach people about this one true God to whom they had repented in, in their newfound faith. Instead, Jonah camps outside of the city, on the east side of the city. Jonah also got angry and would not go in. In Jesus' parable, the father has to leave the party to reason with his son. And this is what God does with Jonah. He leaves the celebration inside the repentant city to reason with a stubborn prophet, Jonah. And God is going to speak to this prophet in a powerful yet a very personal way. Verse 6, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. 
So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. And notice, this is the first time in the story of Jonah that we're told he was grateful. He wasn't grateful for the great fish that kept him from drowning. He wasn't grateful when he was puked up onto the beach and finally out of the torment. He wasn't grateful for being given a second chance to follow God's will to Nineveh. He wasn't grateful for the revival that had occurred in the city. He's not grateful until God provides him some shade. What do you expect from a shady fellow like Jonah? Well, here God works another miracle. It's a miracle grow plant. Overnight, in the desert heat, in the desert dryness, God causes a palm plant to grow up and shelter Jonah. Now, the date palms in the Tigris Valley, they grow 8 to 10 feet high. They have these large elephant ear leaves and tender stalks. This plant is common in Palestine, in India, even in parts of Africa. In fact, the palm is the symbol that's on Iraqi coins even today. Now, here God provided Jonah some supernatural shade. Overnight, this leafy palm grows 8 to 10 feet in one night and serves the pouting prophet sort of like a beach umbrella. The palm was God's merciful relief from the heat of the sun. Of course, Jonah may have interpreted this as this unexpected blessing as maybe a prelude for what was about to happen, what he'd been waiting on. Oh yeah, God's gonna give me some shelter because it's about to be showtime. Fire and brimstone are about to fall. That's probably how he interpreted it. But verse seven, But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And every gardener knows this can happen. Worms eat away at the leaves. They can defoliate an entire plant. Hungry worms can destroy a healthy plant. And this is what happened to Jonah's precious palm. Notice the plant grew overnight, then the plant died overnight. In short, God gives and God takes away. And you remember what Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the right response. (laughs) That's not Jonah's response. For it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. It's a really messed up guy. You you got to see that. I mean, for a second time, Jonah pleads for God to kill him. I mean, this man had such a grim outlook on life. Rather than endure a difficulty, his first reaction is always just to check out. His life has become too miserable to bear. Now, remember, 24 24 hours earlier, Jonah had been surprised by this plant. It was God's gift. Remember, he had been grateful. But now, a day later, just 24 hours, now he believes he deserves the shade. And now he's upset. God had no right to take it away. The sun is now beating down on him. The wind is now chafing his skin. That's not all that's making Jonah miserable. Bitterness. 
is the heaviest burden that a person can carry. It's been said, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it never gets better. You don't heal a grudge by nursing it, but by forgiving its cause and letting it go. Well, in verse 9, God again asked Jonah a question. It's similar to the one he posed back in verse 4. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. <laughs> Jonah is so stubborn. He thought he deserved the plant God sent and the shade it provided. Jonah came to Nineveh hoping to see the city burn with fire. Instead, he's the one burning up under the hot summer sun. Once again, he asked God to just take his life. You know, when you study Jonah, one truth you can't escape is that no one is too messed up to be used by God. I mean, bitter, angry, depressed, prejudiced. I mean, here's a prophet with a death wish. I mean, Jonah was not the ideal candidate to send to Nineveh. This fellow had some very real hang-ups. Just goes to show God can use anybody. Jonah wants Nineveh to fry or he'd just as soon die. And yet to the end, God is patient with Jonah. God loved his reluctant prophet as much as he loved the wicked Ninevites. God wants to help Jonah grasp his grace. Do you know about God's grace? Not just with your head, but with your heart. You know, today's society takes a really hard stance against racial prejudice, as we rightly should. There is no sympathy for the news anchor or for the television host who uses a racial slur. Even in those cases where it's obvious there was no malice. You know, where the person just sort of got caught up in a conversation and sent out an ill-advised tweet that happens. Or when the statement was made in a different context that it's now being framed. It just seems that our society has only so much empathy. And it's all reserved for the victim, not the perpetrator. But God does something here that's unheard of in a politically correct society. He not only has love for the victims of this hate crime, the Ninevites, but he even has compassion on the perpetrator of the bigotry, Jonah himself. God is determined to rehabilitate his prejudiced prophet. God speaks to him again in verse 10. The Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Even after having received God's grace, Jonah treated this blessing as if he was entitled to it. Hey, hey you need to know a sense of entitlement that God or the world owes you. That sense of entitlement is an enemy of God. And it is the opposite of grace. God didn't owe Jonah. Jonah didn't buy the plant. He didn't pot the plant. He didn't water the plant. He didn't prune the plant. God gave him the plant. And, and my oh my, the palm only lived 24 hours. But isn't it interesting how even in that short time, it became his palm, 
It was Jonah's palm tree. Now, how dare God mess with my palm? See, a sense of entitlement turned Jonah into a selfish person. It'll do the same to you. He was trapped by his own selfishness, and Jonah never grasped the concept of God's grace, that God's love is on the house, that it's free. It's unsought and unbought and unwrought. It's unmerited favor that God gives us. We just have to have the faith to receive it. It's interesting that in his alienation from people, the people that God had called him to love, the Ninevites, Jonah got attached to a plant. And you know, I found that like Jonah, some people, in the absence of human relationships, they get attached to plants or to animals. For some, it's their ferns and their flowers. For others, it's the pet. For still others, it's a hobby or a career. See, people can use a flower bed or a pet or some pursuit as an emotional substitute for a real flesh and blood person. My former next door neighbor, she was an older lady who literally lived for her plants and her flowers. She complained whenever my boys even set foot in her yard, whenever they walked through her yard. She told me once they were matting down her grass. She couldn't stand it. She proceeded to make every kid on the block, every kid in the neighborhood an enemy of hers because she was so protective of her silly yard. It's sad when grass becomes more important to you than people. Our family would have adopted this lady as a second grandma, but she never let us get close. Why? Because she made her rhododendrons more valuable to her than any relationship she might have with any of us. Like Jonah, she forgot what really matters in life. Recall 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I mean, don't ever let a thing become more valuable to you than a person. There are only two earthly things that are going to live forever. The Bible, the Word of God, and the souls of men and women, boys and girls. It's your neighbor that's either going to heaven or to hell. Your petunias, they're going to turn back to dirt. People should be our priority. Perhaps you spend all day playing video games. Or maybe you'd like to cross-stitch, or you paint, or maybe you tinker on cars, or read, or hit golf balls. I don't know what you do. Maybe it's some other hobby. And don't misunderstand, none of these activities are evil in and of themselves, as long as you don't use them as a way to substitute for or escape people. Yet you say, oh, but Pastor Sandy, I'm just not a people person. Well, why aren't you? If you're not a people person, you're at odds with God because God is into people. Only God takes priority over people. God loves Ninevites, not palm trees. And just as Jonah was surrounded by Ninevites, so are you. Are you a plant person, a pet person, or are you a people person? I mean, don't waste your life like Jonah, sitting in the shade of trivialities. Care about what God cares about. Serve and love people. 
Sure, helping people is more difficult, and it's a lot messier than tilling your garden or even cleaning up after your dog. But trust me, in the end, it's far more rewarding. Herman Killebrew, he was a professional baseball player. He was a slugger for the Minnesota Twins, played back in the 1960s. When Harmon was inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame, he told a story about his dad. The elder Killebrew always pitched with his two boys in the front yard. He'd play pitch with a baseball in the front yard. On occasion, Harmon's mom would complain about them wearing out the grass. His dad would always reply, Honey, we're raising boys, not grass. Mr. Killebrew knew what really matters in life. Well, verse 11 concludes, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? As I said at the beginning, the 120,000 persons unable to discern their right from their left were the children, the Ninevite preschoolers. And it's from this number that we calculate Nineveh's population. If there were 120,000 preschoolers, then there had to have been around a million and a half people. But here's God's point. Like the Florida mussels, those mussels in the Apalachicola River, Jonah cared more about a plant than the survival of a million plus people, even the children. You know, today when you go to Jerusalem, Palestinian panhandlers They use kids, innocent little kids, to beg for money. These kids approach you with these big, sad eyes, and they're great at begging. They beg you for money, and you give it to them. And then they take the money, and they go back to give it to their rich handlers. But here, God is really trying to do the same thing. He's using the same approach on Jonah. He mentions the innocent children in order to squeeze this man's selfish heart and try to ooze out of his whole hard heart just a few drops of compassion. Jonah, don't you care about the Nineveh? Don't you at least care about their children? Come on, Jonah. Are you so prejudiced, so hard-hearted that you don't even care about their kids? Jonah pitied a plant that was literally here today and gone tomorrow. Yet he got angry with God for showing compassion on a million Ninevites that he created and that he loved deeply, and that would live forever. The prophet's priorities were out of sync with the rhythm of God's heart and his love for people. God wants to forgive sins, and he wants to heal hurts, and he wants to mend breaks, and he wants to open eyes, and he wants to provide rest, and he wants to restore our usefulness. God wants to do all that for us. Hey, God created plants and animals, but it's people that he loves and that he saves. People matter to God. And if the salvation of Nineveh isn't proof enough, look to the cross. Jesus became a people so he could die in the place of people. And not just Ninevites, but Snevelites and Lilburnites and all you otherites out there. Don't be a Jonah. Be a Jesus. Be a giver, not a griper. Help grow people, not just pets and plants. God cares for you. Now you need to care for the people around you. Did God's efforts change Jonah's heart? 
I mean, what ultimately happened to Jonah? Well, we don't know. The book sort of leaves us hanging. And I think that's the point. I think God wants us to walk away with this question that applies to our own lives. Do we care about the people God cares about? Or are we so wrapped up in our prejudices that we can't hear the voice of legitimate cries for help? Have we become immune even to the cries of the children? Are we so busy petting dogs and watering plants that we don't have time for the people that Jesus died to save? In the end, Jonah's outcome remains a mystery. We know for years, archaeologists identified a mound near the ancient ruins of Nineveh that the locals called Nebi Yunus, Arabic for the prophet Jonah. This mound was so venerated, the Muslims built a mosque over the site, and they refused to let it be explored. A whalebone even hung on the inside. The Arabs claimed that the ancient mound was the site of the tomb of Jonah. We'd like to think that Jonah laid down his prejudices and loved the Assyrians, and he stayed there to help them grow in their faith. Perhaps this is why the site was so respected. Sadly, in 2014, ISIS fighters blew up the tomb of Jonah. Though the prophet is revered by Islam, they destroyed the tomb and the mosque that housed it as an assault on the role that Jonah plays in Christianity. ISIS understands that Jesus pointed to Jonah as a type of his death and burial and resurrection. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It was ISIS and Islam's hatred for Jesus and Christianity that caused the attack on Jonah's memory. I want to wrap this all up by bringing you in on a little intrigue and espionage. You up for it? Good, good, good. Did you know your pastor is an international spy? I just sort of double as a pastor. It's kind of my front. I'm really an international spy. On a recent trip to our recent trip to Italy, we visited the Vatican. You know the secrets in the Vatican. And we particularly visited the Sistine Chapel. Now, you're not supposed to take photographs in the Sistine Chapel, especially of Michelangelo's famous ceiling. It's a masterpiece there in the Sistine Chapel. But I'm there. And I'm thinking to myself, who are these Catholics telling me, a Protestant pastor, what to do and what not to do? I could take a photograph here that might help me teach the Bible to those good folks back at Calvary Chapel. And so for the sake of my congregation, I got a little rebellious. I took out my phone. And I kind of held it down by my side. And I started snapping pictures of the ceiling, Michelangelo's ceiling in really super spy fashion <laughs> until I was caught by one of the Italian guards. <laughs> and I was sentenced to a flogging in the public square. Now, I'm just kidding about the flogging. But I did get a strong rebuke and a serious frown. Yet before I got caught, 
Look at the photo I snapped of Michelangelo's ceiling. Pretty cool, huh? And here's our friend Jonah, a close-up. Notice the fish, that's Jonah. Michelangelo's version. Here's an up-close photo, it's clearer. Remember, mine was taken under duress. (laughs) This one's clearer. Pay attention to Jonah now, his face, his, his countenance. Pay attention. The entire ceiling is a masterpiece. But all art critics say there's something unique about the portrayal of Jonah. There is a brightness shining from his face. Author Lloyd Ogilvie, he writes this. Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican portrays the prophets, apostles, and patriarchs. Of all the faces he painted, none has a more radiant countenance than Jonah. Now Ogilvie surmises, we wonder if Michelangelo knew something we don't know about what happened to Jonah after the sudden close of his biography. Did Michelangelo know something we don't know about? The Renaissance artist chose to portray Jonah with a radiant face as if he were a man set free from prejudice and who had fallen in love with God's grace and with his fellow man. This is how I like to think of Jonah. It's nice to assume that Jonah overcame his prejudices and recognized the mercy and grace that God had given him, then showed the Ninevites that same kindness. It's never too late. It's never too late to receive God's grace. Always remember the book of Jonah. It's full of miracles, chock full of miracles. There was the storm at sea. Of course, there was the great fish. There was the overnight plant, the hungry worm, the sudden east wind. But the greatest miracle is when God transforms a bigot into a big-hearted person. That's the greatest miracle. That's what we hope happened to Jonah and what we trust happens to us.